Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So I want to start the talk um, with a quote from the Buddha. This is from the Dhammapada, a collection of the Buddha's teachings. Um, and this is a translation uh, by uh, Thomas Byram. He says, Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. This is what the Buddha said, to um, live in joy, live with joy, under any conditions. And I wanted to um, share tonight why I uh, particularly have been focusing, not exclusively, but um, very much over these last uh, years on um, awakening joy, and I'll I'll share a little bit about uh, how it, it came about, and then want to share some of the essence, essential principles of um, what I uh, like to communicate. I got into practice. Some of you have heard a little background, uh, my background before. I got into practice in 1974 uh, at Boulder, Colorado, at Naropa Institute, um, which was opening that year. And I went there because uh, Ramdas was teaching there, and I had been carrying around Be Here Now like a Bible for a few years. Uh, If you're my age, you might have found yourself doing the same thing. And when I went there, um, I uh, went into Joseph Goldstein's class. I asked Ramdas, what should I do about meditation? He said, go check this guy Goldstein out. And uh, I, um, I just fell hook, line, and sinker. It was like, this is what I'd been looking for. I was, as I've shared before, a lot of internal distress and confusion and uh, my own kind of sufferings and insecurities. And um, when I heard the Dharma uh, from Joseph, I said, that's it. I'm, I'm going for this. And I uh, was very motivated because of my, my own suffering and I did a lot of retreats for uh, about ten years. Um, as many, I was, I 
continued to, I've been doing a lot of retreats since then, but particularly that period of time, it was more like, um, well, I'm kind of carrying on with my life outside in the world, but where it was really happening was uh, on the cushion uh, because it was so compelling and I could see, um, not only see some changes, but more than that, I, I kind of, um, I fell in love with the Dharma and fell in love with this inquiry of how the mind works, how the heart works. And um, there's a, in the teachings, there's, there's a quality called uh, citta idipada, where you, you touch the truth and it can be so mm, compelling that um, it's like a, a moth to a flame. You don't have any choice. Like this is... This is where uh, one keeps coming back to. And I, during that time, um, as I said, not only was it uh, compelling, but it was <clears throat> incredibly inspiring. And I had what is sometimes um, called a long honeymoon period. I was just in love with the Dharma. And it was my... Deep, it was my salvation. And I wanted to tell everybody about it too. You know, like I remember those early days just kind of you know, going down the streets basically saying, you just have to be mindful. You just have to be mindful. You know, and my friends or people would kind of like get their distance. Okay, uh, cool it. Um, I kind of toned down after a while. I didn't want to turn people off. But I had just this incredible... um, I was on fire, really. And in fact, practiced that way. There's one one quote from, uh, from some great master saying, practice like your hair is on fire. And that's what I was how I was practicing, with a lot of joy. At some point, as can sometimes happen, I got very serious about practice. Dead serious. <laughs> Emphasis on the dead. And I somehow um, distorted my understanding of some of the teachings was distorted and um, at least looking back, that's how I see it, and um, lost my passion, not for the Dharma, but for most, uh, most other things, or felt very conflicted if I was, um, you know, I love music, I love sports, it was quite a game last week, wasn't it, <laughs> by the way? <laughs> I haven't lost com- my passion at all for sports. It's come back to me full on, especially these days, if you're a 49er fan. Um, but I was conflicted. Oh, this isn't, is this what the Buddha said? Is it okay to really enjoy the fullness of life? Um, and I, um, I went through a period where... As I said, I became um, 
confused and somber about practice. Um, intense, but I didn't know quite what to do with my passion. Um, and that was for a, a chunk of time, for a few years. Uh, and I was teaching and loving teaching and uh, I think helpful, but inwardly there was some, this is all not on a conscious level, but some kind of something that was a bit um, um, out of sync, dissonant. Mm. And there, one thing I wanted to bring up tonight, not just sharing my story, but... but um, discussing how sometimes that can happen with some teachings that one can uh, misunderstand. The Buddha was called the happy one. And he said, go for the highest happiness and you'll get all the other wholesome happinesses. Uh, And as you, maybe uh, you've read the Dalai Lama's book, The Art of Happiness, and it starts out with the line, the purpose of life is to be happy. Just, just taking that line, the purpose of life is to be happy. But it can get distorted, particularly when in uh, Buddhist teachings and readings, we hear a lot about suffering. There is suffering, the first noble truth. There's a cause of suffering. There is the end of suffering is possible, and there's a path leading to the end of suffering. Those are the Four Noble Truths. And with that, with so much of an emphasis on suffering and its end, uh, the, the word happiness and joy can sometimes be lost. And I would go to uh, um, practice with some very... Mm, rigorous uh, masters, Asian masters, and uh, on one three-month uh, retreat that I, I practiced with, with one master, every, uh, every talk, there was a talk every night, and the, the talk, he would end the talk, may you speedily um, escape from the woes of this world and realize uh, the bliss of Nibbana. And I thought, oh, okay. Basically, he's saying, let's get out of here. And when you're in a very open space and you're so taking in the messages, it can have an impact. And those kinds of, there's a few teachings that can have this impact. I want to share a couple with you so you can see how the Buddha's message of highest happiness can be distorted. Some of you have heard this before, so uh, um, bear with me for the repetition, but not not everybody has. Mm. One concept, a very important concept, um, known as samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A, Samvega, which is translated, this is uh, Ajahn Tanisaro, uh, his translation, Samvega, 
the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. Doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun (laughs) over here, huh? Now, this is a a very important concept, Samvega. It's actually a very um, vital, essential concept to motivate one to go for the deepest truths. But it can be, as you probably sense, easily distorted or misunderstood. Life is meaningless, and let's get out. But the key phrase in this definition, realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived, And that can be kind of glossed over as it's normally lived, as most people go through life. And then as you you go deeper into practice, you see there's another way to go through life than what we've been told brings us happiness. That maybe more isn't better and... um, comparing ourselves to some imaginary standard of success um, isn't the way that there's a deeper kind of happiness. So that's one very um, uh, powerful concept that can, that can lead to some um, mm, difficult relationships with life. Another concept which... Again, very important concept, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is known as nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, nibida. And nibida, uh, there's a few different definite, there's a few different ways that that word can be translated. Here's a few translations. Um, One should abide in utter disgust for the aggregates. Now the aggregates, if you're not familiar with that phrase, is a way of saying this mind and body. In Buddhism, in the Buddhist teachings, we are five aggregates. We've talked about this here before. Form, this body, feeling, Perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Those last four have to do with the mind, and the first one is the body. So when, when uh, the Buddha would be would ask would be asked, you know, who are you? He'd say, you are five aggregates. You are just a com- um, comprised of these different components. The word aggregate means. Um, group or um, a pile. It's actually bundle, like a bundle of hay. 
is, uh, the word is kanda in Pali or skanda in Sanskrit. Five skandas or five kandas. They're groups. It's a skanda of hay, a pile of, of hay wrapped around. So you, when he says you are five aggregates, that this is rather than identifying with this form to see through that identification. But then when you hear this instruction, one should abide in the utter disgust for the aggregates. This is in a translation by a guy named Woodward. You think, oh, I'm supposed to have disgust for this body and mind. That's what the teachings are about. Now, for many of us, it's all we can do to even you know, look in the mirror and start to appreciate and like ourselves. But then you hear, one should have disgust. <laughs> you know, that puts a different twist on it. Another, another translation um, by a, a, a famous translator, um, practicing in accordance with the Dhamma, one should dwell engrossed in revulsion towards the aggregates. Again, not a whole lot of fun. But what that word that is being translated as revulsion and utter disgust, that word nibbida, what it really means, and you can uh, see a really great essay by Andy Olinsky, who um, is the head of the Barry Center for uh, Buddhist Studies. Um, What nibbida means is disenchantment, which was translated as disgust or revulsion. But when you think of it as one should have disenchantment for, with regard to this body and mind, it has a, bit of, it has a very different spin. Disenchantment is really another way of saying not being enchanted by this body and mind. Or one could even say to break the spell of that enchantment or the trance of getting so um, attached to either this form or forms around. Oh, wow, that's a nice... uh, Five aggregates passing by there, you know. As maybe once or twice you've seen the power of, oh, I like that five aggregates, you know. I like that appearance, that body, that mind, that being, or this one getting very attached in one way or another to this body and mind. And... The, the teachings are about breaking through the identification with this sense of self and with the identification and attachment to others around. So, again, you can see how easy it can be distorted in, when you read, oh, one should have revulsion or disgust. And as I did, I fell into that 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 trap, this misunderstanding, and thinking it's not okay to appreciate, to enjoy, 
to honor, to um, be touched by the goodness of things and the beauty of things. And when I kind of saw my confusion and came back to uh, my own natural passion and I reclaimed, so to speak, that's how I think of it, reclaimed my natural joy, I wanted to um, see where I had misunderstood, where I'd gone wrong, and also saw that I wasn't alone, that many people can get very serious about practice. It can be a, a very beautiful thing. I was, I was serious those first 10 years in my honeymoon period and was in love with the Dharma. But then it became um, a kind of, as I said, somberness, and uh, I had a very different relationship to it. And then I, I, wanted to see, I wanted to share with others maybe who had gone through this challenge and uh, wanted to read a quote that I, I love and I, I put, in, put an excerpt of it in, uh, in the book Awakening Joy by Ajahn Sumedho who is one of the most respected and revered uh, Western uh, monastics, the senior monastic uh, in Theravadan Buddhism. He's Ajahn Amaro's. He was his. He was the abbot and appointed Ajahn Amaro to succeed him in Amaravati. And he was he was Ajahn Chah's first Western um, student and was, kind of, was Jack Cornfield's kind of uh, uh, elder and uh, uh, and support when Jack first studied with Ajahn Chah. So he really knows what he's talking about. And this is what he says. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That is a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of reality. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. So it was clear, I'm not alone. I wasn't alone in this. And when I did kind of wake up, uh, I went back and took a look and saw that wanted to see, what does the Buddha really say about happiness? Why is he called the happy one? Why does he say, really go 
for happiness. Understand where it genuinely lies and go for it. And in the teachings, there are a number of different ways that this happiness or well-being are expressed. Particularly, the word joy is, is used in a number of lists. And when I use the word joy, I'm really more pointing to um, a feeling of well-being. Sometimes joy can be a real stretch for people. Awakening joy. I'll take not being miserable, thank you. You know, and so that's one thing you have to kind of see the the, the different flavors of well-being. But just in the teaching, so you you see, joy is one of the factors of enlightenment. One of the seven factors of enlightenment. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment. Joy is one of the four divine abodes along with loving kindness, compassion, and equanimity. There is sympathetic joy, joy in the delight and the happiness of others. There is bliss, rapture, joy um, that can be experienced both physically and mentally and bodily that uh, besides being a factor of enlightenment, the, the word piti is, is used, P-I-T-I, uh, which is also one of the, um, the concentration factors, one of the absorption factors, one of the, the five jhana factors. Uh, and then there's a whole range of different kinds of well-being, from uh, sukha, which generally is translated as happiness, there's contentment, there is uh, pamoja, which is a kind of gladness. So many, many, many different flavors. So don't let the word joy trip you up. You have to kind of translate it and see what aspect of this well-being really resonates for you. And when I looked at both the teachings, classical teachings, and in, in, uh, in more recent times, looking at uh, neuroscience, I became a a bit more um, understanding of of where real happiness lies and how to to develop it. So first, the, the whole course and whether or not you would do the course is something to just kind of keep in mind and consider in your in your life um, is uh, resting on three different teachings that that have struck me. One is the teaching on wise effort or right effort, one of the factors of, uh, of the Eightfold Path. Wise effort, sometimes it's, 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 thought to be a balanced effort, not too tight, not too, not too lax, just the right amount of effort to be present. But technically, wise effort has four components. One is, uh, two have to do with unwholesome states, and two have to do with wholesome states. 
One is guarding against unwholesome states, what are called akusala. And the other on that end of things is when an unwholesome state arises to, um, to overcome it in some way so you're not completely uh, overwhelmed by it. And there's skillful use as the unwholesome states arise. Unwholesome states are states that are states of suffering and that lead to more suffering, like greed, anger, fear, confusion, jealousy. Um, You know those, right? Get the idea? And all of those states are states of contraction. The body is contracted, the mind is contracted, the heart gets contracted, and we can't see clearly. Then the other two aspects of wise effort are cultivating wholesome states. Kusala. States like love, kindness, generosity, compassion, gratitude, um, patience, equanimity. All of those states are states of openness. They are in themselves feeling of well-being and they lead to greater well-being. So that's the first principle. To we and most of us, when you do practice, you're you hear a lot about how to overcome unwholesome states. Yeah, this mind is such a drag, and I, I get so confused. And what do I do with it? You know, and that's really important because you know we're subject to those states a lot. But we also need to remember that this is about cultivating beautiful states, and it's not often um, stressed that fourth aspect of wise effort, which is when a beautiful state is here, to maintain and increase wholesome states. So the third aspect is to cultivate wholesome states, cultivate loving kindness, cultivate generosity, cultivate um, compassion. And when it has arisen to maintain and increase a wholesome state. That's the fourth quality of wise effort. To maintain and increase a wholesome state. Now the mind might say, aha, well then when a good state is here, how do I keep it here? Okay, Bring it on. Come on, don't go away. However, you fall into a trap when you have that attitude. And this is the tricky part. When it feels really good, our usual response is, I want it and let's keep it here. And what we do is we attach to it. Or we're afraid that it's going to go. And as soon as there's a fear that it's going to go, You've just changed from a wholesome state to an unwholesome state. So it's very tricky. Because any kind of contraction, and there you are back in an unwholesome state.
But he does say to maintain and increase wholesome states in a skillful way, which we'll get to in a, in a few moments. So that's the first principle. Developing and maintaining and increasing wholesome states, which is uh, wise effort and also um, that we can practice in our daily life. And the, and the, the, uh, the, the joy course is 10 different wholesome states that one can develop in one's life. Second teaching is there is with, an, uh, with a wholesome state a feeling of uplift and gladness that happens. Like think right now, you close your eyes for a moment and think of something that brings you joy. And maybe a, an activity or some, uh, some engagement, um, uh, something that brings you joy. And uh, remember the last time you were engaged in it. And uh, as you remember, just notice how it feels inside. how it feels in your body, how it feels in your mind, in your heart. Okay, you can open your eyes. Actually, let me just hear from a few people. What, uh, what did you come up with? One thing that brings you joy. We'll, go, we'll hear from a few people. Her, your nephew. I was with some uh, a group today at Spirit Rock, and somebody said the same thing. Tickling my nephew, she said. Yeah, playing with children and 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 adorable beings that we're close to, especially. Yes. Eating sushi with your daughter. Okay, that's the double hit. So you got the connection with your daughter, and there's the love there, and there's enjoying a pleasant experience. Yeah. What else? Drawing, okay, so some kind of creative expression, drawing or singing or dancing or something like that. Yes, anything else? Uh, Hiking, okay, hiking out in nature. Very, a very uh, uh, good bet that you'll feel good. Yes. Say again? To hang out with friends, just feeling that connection. Okay. And when you thought of it, did you feel kind of, oh, this is nice. Oh, yeah, I have this in my life. How sweet. Yeah. So the Buddha said that associated with that wholesome state, there's a gladness. It feels good, doesn't it? And he says, and this is how you can maintain and increase the wholesome state, at least that I, my understanding don't miss the gladness. Don't just say, oh yeah, this feels good. Okay, what's the next thing on the agenda? Really be present for it and take it in. And he says in one discourse, this is in Majjhima Nikaya number 99, where he says, um, the gladness that's connected with a wholesome state is 
I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. You know, you can be kind of bummed out going through your day or maybe in a funky period and something happens that, that uplifts you. Say you have a, a loving, loving connection with somebody or you're playing with your nephew or whatever and all of a sudden it kind of disperses all of that ill will and contraction and hostility. And he says, pay attention to that. One, that gladness connected with the wholesome opens the heart. One gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the truth, and one delights in that. So he says, for instance, if you're in the middle of a generous act, he says, think about how, think to yourself, I'm being generous now. And with that, ah, you just kind of not take ownership of it, but just see, oh, it feels so good to be generous. And so you're tuning into the gladness of that. That's the second principle. And this counteracts the tendency of our brains to miss out on the wholesome, to miss out on the good stuff. Because there's this wiring in our mind to look for what can go wrong. And it's, it helps us survive. The amygdala, little almond-shaped cluster of neurons in the brain, is looking out for what can go wrong. And it's a good thing that it's there, except it can get overstimulated, particularly in stress, and it can be a hip, habitual vigilance looking for where the next problem is. And we can miss out on all the well-being around us. In one study I came across, um, I think I mentioned this here, it takes, if you've had one negative experience in a day, it takes on the average seven positive experiences to kind of balance that out. Somebody says something sharp to you and you're kind of a little poked. Uh, it takes maybe seven people saying, hi, how you doing? Oh, how nice, you know. Oh, and then you kind of settle down. So it takes some practice to take in that experience of well-being. And the way to do it is to be very present and mindful for it. So that's the second quality. One, cultivating wholesome states and maintaining increasing them as well as dealing with the unwholesome. Two, noticing the gladness connected with those wholesome states. And then the third teaching that really has struck me, I've mentioned it here before, in uh, one discourse the Buddha says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind that that becomes the way you look at things. Or in neuroscience, it's said, neurons that fire together, wire together. And you start to have a habitual way of inclining your mind. And for many of us, the habitual way is, where is the danger? And so if you're looking through that lens, your brain, your priming your, the brain, as one 
neuroscience expert Dan Siegel says, you're, and, and you have what's called confirmation bias that's kind of looking to confirm your hypothesis. There's danger, and you miss out on all the non-danger, or can easily. Whereas if you prime your brain, if you incline your mind to seeing all the good and noticing those moments of well-being, then you start to have that uh, confirmed. Your brain will notice all the good. And I, I must say, as a, as a, even before I got into this, for many years, my practice had been, since like the 70s, um, the uh, instruction that I took in from Neem Karoli Baba, who was Ram Dass's guru uh, in Be Here Now, where he said, keep looking for the good. He said, the best form to worship God is every form. And I took that to mean, keep looking for the good around. And so I was inclining that way for a while, but you can go off track. And, and, and uh, I did go off track for a while. So anyway, over the course of a number of weeks and months, you will start to incline your mind in a different way. And in fact, um, uh, if, you, um, if you start to, this is Rick Hansen's suggestion, taking in the good, if you have a moment of well-being, to really let it register for about 30 seconds. And if you do that six times in a day, it's three minutes, that's a lot. If you do that six times in a day for two weeks, you will notice a shift in your general level of well-being, both because you're deepening those neural pathways, but you're also starting to be on the lookout for the good around you. So that's, that's part of what uh, I like to uh, teach, these, these different wholesome states and inclining your mind over time because it takes practice. It's one thing to know it here. Oh, yeah, I know. Life is, life is pretty good if I remember it. Okay, but it's a whole other one to mo- move from a conceptual understanding to an embodied understanding. That takes practice. So this is the essence of it. And when I, I find that when people actually practice doing it, like the Buddha said, when you frequently, what you frequently think and ponder upon becomes the inclination of your mind. We all have this capacity for well-being, all of us. You were born with it. And if you see a child in a, uh, you know, if, if the child, if she or he is fed and diapered and given a bit of love, what do they do? They squeal with delight. Wow, isn't life wonderful? And it kind of reminds you, oh yeah, that's cool. Oh yeah, I remember that. Oh, look at how one can squeal with delight. And the same with an adult, if you put an adult if in an MRI machine, an fMRI machine, and that adult is not stressed, that's a big one right there, physical or mental stress, what they exhibit 
they're wired up, calm, conscious, creative, caring, and content. That's the natural state when you're not stressed. And certainly, if you've practiced it another way your whole life, it might be hard to access that. But almost everybody, even going to sleep at night, ah, there's a time that you just let go. But if you, you have a moment of being in nature on a lovely day, and for a moment you just forget your cares, and you just take it in, ah, there it is, right there. The natural well-being that just gets obscured by the confusion around us. So this is possible, and this is what the Buddha said, to cultivate and develop those wholesome states. And in that, you create the possibility for real freedom of mind and heart. So that's, in essence, um, what I like to share. So we'll take some time. Any questions that might have come up or anything uh, on what's been said? And uh, let's see. Thais, can you raise your hand, Sarah? I was just wondering, um, when you said the one to seven ratio for the... where is that from? Like that's there's a some study, some uh, I, and I I have to track down the study, but I remember reading it, and other people have have said, "Oh yeah, I know that study." But I, this is fascinating yeah. to me, and so yeah. I'm just really curious to hear more. Yep. There's a hand. Oh, here's Sarah. Why don't you pass it over there? Did uh, did you and the Buddha forget to mention humor and laughter, or does it not rise to the uh, the uh, prominence of the wholesome states that you described? Well, I think it's a wholesome state, and in fact, um, in one of the in one of the uh, themes around connection with others. Um, and it's been corroborated also by a lot of uh, um, neuroscience, play is a very uh, important element of the human uh, expression into well-being. Buddhist, the Pali Canon doesn't say a whole lot about play or laughter, except if you're a monastic, it's not recommended. Uh, not the laughter part, but the but you but you're not supposed to go to shows or uh, you know entertainment. Uh, but the Buddha actually, there are a few places where you can see he had even he had a sense of humor. Uh, but it, this is one of the things that that I wondered about. But then when I see the people who've inspired me, like the Dalai Lama, that guy knows how to laugh, or Ajahn Chah who would just laugh a lot. And uh, in fact, I went, one, I was, stu- I was with one Burmese master who would, if he'd start to smile, would hold up, and this is a classical thing, he'd hold up a, a, his Bodhi leaf fan to cover his mouth because in, in that culture, it was unseemly for, a, for a, a, 
a high realized being to laugh when they're suffering in the world. And I was saying, whoa, I don't know if I'm ready for this. And then uh, hung out with Ajahn Chah in Thailand, who was laughing up a storm. And I said, okay, if that's what you turn into, I, I can deal with it. <laughs> but you have to, it, it's not so obvious with the Asian cultures. Ajahn Sumedho has obviously a great sense of humor. Ajahn Amaro does. And really the high beings uh, all know how to laugh. Anything else? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, great. Thanks. Nice. I wanted to ask about the uh, three minutes holding on to uh, joy, holding on to something good for three minutes, and how um, um, without floating back into the past, how do you stay present with the unfolding world uh, with that? Uh, Okay. I don't don't see it as a problem, but I'm a little confused how to do it. Okay. So actually, in in a couple of minutes we have left, just give you an example. So the key, when there is a moment of well-being, is to not miss it. By not missing it, meaning to bring mindfulness to your actual internal experience. So for instance, here's a simple example, and I would do this in the, in the course. One main theme is gratitude. Like you just close your eyes for a moment and think of someone or something that you feel a lot of gratitude for. Just close your eyes and try it. And if somebody or something comes to mind, bring an image into your consciousness of that person or that situation. And as you have a connection to the image, just give a simple, silent, Thank you from your heart to that person or to life. Thank you. And now, as you're in that space, let your awareness relax into that feeling. You can kind of go back and forth between the thank you and Noticing how it feels in your body, in your mind, in your heart. Take a breath. Let's do another one. Bring to mind another blessing in your in your life. We're, I would, I, I'm sure we're all blessed in so many ways. No matter what else is going on in your life. Tune into a blessing, someone or something about your life, in your life. Have an image. A simple, sincere thank you from the heart. And then let yourself feel it. Thank you.
And just relax into that. You don't have to make anything more than it is. Just feel it. Don't miss it. Oh, thank you. Just feel the landscape of gratitude. Okay, you can open your eyes. Get the idea? So you might just try that this week. Whenever you happen to be in a moment of well-being, and if you say, I don't know if I have any of them, um, being not miserable counts, okay? (laughs) So if you happen to check in and say, oh, I'm not miserable right now, (laughs) chances are you're feeling okay. Don't miss okayness. That counts too. You don't want to go for bells and whistles. If you go for bells and whistles, you'll feel very frustrated. All you need to do is just tune into any moments of okayness, and particularly if they're sweet and delicious, that much more. Don't miss them. Why miss them? Right? And that's the general principle, to notice those wholesome states when they're here and to bring mindfulness to them and feel embodied in your awareness of the goodness inside. Okay? So that can be your little extra credit assignment uh, for the week. Okay, we should close, and I'll just close with a very short loving kindness. And just feel how blessed you are, even just sharing, sharing the space with, with others, sharing the silence, being in a warm, or relatively warm room, um, out from the cold, living, being here in Berkeley, not bad. Take in that blessing and wish yourself well. May I open up to all the goodness in my life. And may I share my love well. And then wish that for everybody else here and in all directions to all beings. May all see their own goodness inside and in others and share it well and awaken to their true nature. And may our coming together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. May all beings find the highest happiness and peace. Thank you very much. Enjoy your week. And I do mean enjoy it. (laughs) If it's there, whatever it is.